0: We are doing communion this morning, so I am up here a little early, so we will preach the word, and then we will we will celebrate the word um, at the table this morning. So we are um, continuing a series that we dropped about three weeks ago, because I was gone for three weeks, called The Church, What Are We? If uh, you said the word, you are a rock, um, it says a lot of things. It's only four letters, but it says uh, a lot of things. It says you're solid. It says you're strong, it says you're firm, unbreakable, you bring security, you bring, you are a leader. Just say the word, you are a rock, uh, a lot of different meaning will come out. If you say the word, you are a pig, <laughs> a lot of different meanings will come out. Um, I won't get into all the descriptions of that, but it's just three letters, and you can make a lot of huge statements by making one-word statements. Throughout Scripture, God looks at the church, and the Word looks at the church, and it speaks. And it calls us a word, specific words, and those words come with an extreme amount of meaning. And during this series, that's what we've been looking at is the meaning of these words. A little bit of review that has taken place during the series is we are the bride of Christ. We understand what a bride means and we understand who God is and this is a picture of our relationship. We also look, you are the new humanity. We are God's field. We are God's family. We are God's flock. We are God's body. Scripture is using those metaphorical statements to give us a picture of God's relationship with us and what we are. So we will continue this series this week, and then we'll finish it up next week. But this morning we're going to talk about we are the temple of God. Number one, we, the church, are the temple of God, which is a picture of our identity. It's mentioned a couple times in Scripture that we are a temple, and I just want to read those verses that talk about us being a temple. And it's going to be a little bit confusing because when you're called a temple, what does that mean? So we'll just read the verses and then we'll work through history and then understand what these verses say in conclusion. Let's read the verses. 1 Corinthians three 16. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Second Corinthians six sixteen through uh, through seventeen. For we are God's temple. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In the First Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own, you were bought with a price. You are a rock. You understand that? Solid, strong, firm, unbreakable. You are a pig. You eat a lot, you eat fast, eat sloppy, you hoard food, you make a mess. You understand those words and words. But let's put the word out. You are a temple. What would you put down underneath a temple? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? We're gonna to have to travel all the way through the Bible to understand what it means. So we'll be looking at some history. Number two, the temple is known as a sacred place where God dwells. In the Old Testament, we see the temple, and it means something different in the Old Testament than it does the New Testament, but it always means a specific fact where God dwells. What I mean by where God dwells is that God dwells everywhere, but he wants to give a revelation of himself and when he wants to give this revelation, he will say, This is where my glory is at. This is specifically where you will see my majesty. You will see my power. You will see my strength. You will see my glory, majesty, power, strength, and beauty in all of it. All the way through. Let's look at uh, the Old Testament. We're going to go through this history and try to understand what God is doing through the Old Testament. Number A, God's presence first dwelt at Mount Sinai power, glory, strength, majesty, fire, and smoke came from this mountain on Mount Sinai. The Egyptians left, um, the Israelites left Egypt. When they left Egypt, Moses took them to the bottom of Mount Sinai, and God gave some specific instructions on what not to do with that mountain. A couple instructions he said, it says, this is where my glory rests, therefore you should not even touch it. If you touch it, you will die. This is the holy of holies, this is my glory, touch it, you will die. He also gave our animals instructions. If your animals touch it, they will die. I have a little dog, and, and uh, yesterday I went to cut wood at somebody's house, and I brought my little dog with me, and, and my little dog wandered next door to the neighbor's house, and uh, the person that uh, I was cutting wood at, said, oh boy, those neighbors, they would probably shoot your dog if you, if you, if you knew he was over there. And my dog's over there, just pooping in his yard. He wasn't really, but you know, just wandering around. And, and my dog probably would have been dead if he was next to Mount Sinai because he would wander wherever he wanted. Instructions to the animals, don't you touch it? And don't let your animals touch it either. Moses went on Mount Sinai and talked face to face to God. And when he talked face to face to God, he came off the mountain, and his face was just glowing. In fact, it was glowing so extreme that people said, Moses, you got to put on a veil. We can't even look at it because God's glory is shining from your face because you went on Mount Sinai, you received the law, and we can't even stand the sight of your beauty and your majesty because you are on top of Mount Sinai. God's power, glory, strength, majesty, fire, was on Mount Sinai. Going through history, in 1446 B.C., God tells Moses that his presence will leave Mount Sinai and travel with the Israelites in a mobile tent known as the tabernacle. God instructed Moses to leave, and Moses says, I will not leave, God, unless you go with us. And therefore, in Exodus, we have instructions on this tabernacle that was built. This tabernacle took 14 chapters in the book of Exodus, to explain how God want this to build, where his presence and his glory would dwell. Let's look at a side to see what the tabernacle looked like. Fourteen chapters, completely designed for the Holy of Holies. This is where God's resting place was. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was a, tail, uh, a veil that stood before the Ark of the Covenant, and every year the priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, just one person, walk into the Holy of Holies, and they had all these restrictions before they did, and be an atonement for sins that took place for the people. But it was very intense, very extreme, because this is where the Shekinah glory was at. Exodus 40, 34-35 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Going through history, see, 980 B.C., Solomon builds a temple for the purpose of God's dwelling place with man. Temple had the same measurements and the same instructions as a tabernacle, but it was not a tent that moved; it was a permanent structure that looked similar to this. It took seven years to build, and this is where the Shekinah glory rested at. 1 Corinthians, or First Kings eight ten says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The temple was an extreme, intense place with power, glory, strength, majesty, fire, and smoke. And it was extremely respected. Respected with reverence because God wanted to make a statement who he was and where he's at, and that was the response that people had in regards to the temple. Letter D, 600 B.C., again, history. The Babylonians destroyed the temple. Israel was placed into captivity and the temple was gone. There was no place where the Shekinah glory rested. The power, glory, strength, majesty, and fire was no longer in the temple as it was destroyed and the earth was suffering as there's no longer a place where God's Shekinah glory rested. Second Chronicles 36, 19 They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Continuing to go through history, 520 BC, Zerubbabel builds a scrawny looking temple with no sparks, no spokes, no fire, with hopes that the coming Messiah would complete its glorious state. So it took place, I'm just giving you a whole bunch of history, but the Persians conquered the Babylonians and the Jews came in and they took over the temple again. And then the king, Cyrus, from Persia, explained to Zerubbabel to bring leadership to build that temple, and so he does. But it was not in a glorious state, and the Shekinah glory was not even resting there. There was no fire, there was no smoke, there was no power, there was no strength, there was no majesty, and people would look around and say, well, this is a temple, but where is the fuel, where is the fire, where is the sparks, where is the majesty, where is the glory? Herod restored this scrawny-looking temple and made it much grander in 39 B.C., much larger, similar to the one that Solomon had. And it was a beautiful place, but still had no fire, no sparks, no glory, no majesty, no smoke. God's Shekinah glory was not resting on the temple. But there was hope. And you know what the hope was? The hope that one day there would be a Messiah that would come to the earth and set fire to the temple. And what I mean by set fire to the temple is to see the Shekinah glory once again. That when the Messiah comes, Jesus comes, that he would bring such glory, honor, beauty, majesty, the same glory, honor, beauty, and majesty that was on Mount Sinai. The same glory, honor, beauty, majesty that was also in the tabernacle. And the same one that was in Solomon's temple, waiting and anticipating this Messiah to come. In 30 AD, Jesus comes. And when he comes, he starts to use radical statements and he starts to speak with extreme amount of authority. And when he speaks with authority and he has miracles to back the authorities up, he starts saying some crazy things. Here's something crazy that he says in Matthew 12:6. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Who is he speaking about? He was speaking about himself. Now people wonder, why was Jesus crucified? These words right here could get somebody crucified in those days because that Shekinah glory is coming to fill the temple, God himself, and Jesus comes down and says, I'm better than the Shekinah glory that Moses saw. I'm better than the Shekinah glory that Solomon built in the temple that, in the majesty that came down. I carry a power. I carry a glory. I carry a strength. I carry a majesty. I carry a fire that is extreme. And he says other radical things in the sense that you can tear this temple down and if you tear it down, I can build it up in three days. But he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking specifically about him. If you kill me, God will raise me up in three days. Jesus had the power, had the glory, had the strength, had the majesty, the same that was on Mount Sinai. He had fire of love, fire of sacrifice, fire of passion, fire of forgiveness. It looked a little bit different, but it carried the power of God. It carried the character of God. It carried the beauty of God. It carried the majesty of God. Let's continue our history lesson. In A.D. 70, The temple was destroyed. and In AD AD 691, the Dome of the Rock, a mosque, was built. Now let's look at these times. AD 70 is roughly 35 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So some of the apostles were still alive. Paul the apostle, I believe, was was even still alive. It's not recorded in the Bible. But the temple was annihilated. Who was supposed to light the temple up? The Messiah was supposed to light the temple up but the Roman army came in and just completely annihilated the temple and after they wiped out the temple what took place AD 691 a mosque was built on the temple we're going to go to Israel in uh, 2019 May 2019 if anybody wants to go there's flyers in the back but if you go let me tell you what you're going to see we'll show you a picture this is what you're going to see you're going to see a temple. And you can't see the whole temple in this picture because my camera wasn't wide enough to even get a picture of the temple base. But you see a mosque that is in the middle of the temple. Now remember, this is the specific place where the Shekinah glory rested. But right now, it's, it's a mosque. I'll tell you something, other, something else you'll see if you come with me on the trip. Next picture, you'll see this. What is that? You know what that is? It's marble. That's all it is. And marble, under any circumstances, bleeds. That's all marble does. It, it bleeds. So all that is, is marble that bleeds. But Let's get an even closer look. <laughs> kind of looks a little funny, doesn't it? Well, where is this marble located at? Next picture will show you where this marble is located at. Just a general marble that bleeds, that is on the temple. Another thing you're going to see if you go to Israel with me is the next picture. You will see many, many people. This is the wailing wall closest, they believe, to the Ark of the Covenant where God's Shekinah glory rested. This is a wall where people will come, people will touch, people will pray, and they are anticipating and waiting for the Messiah to come and light up this temple. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he looked more like a man than he looked like the Shekinah glory, the God that they saw in the Old Testament. People will show up there all day praying, waiting for that Messiah to come. When you go to Israel now, this is what you will see. And when I went a couple years ago, I started asking questions, and I knew the answer to them, but these are questions you can still ask. Uh, Where is God's glory? I mean, this is a beautiful place of history. A beautiful place of, of majesty and, 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 and of history, not majesty, but of, of history and, and how the whole world goes around this one specific area, the temple. But where is God's glory? You can ask, did God, Jesus, was he the Messiah? Did he light up the temple? Because when you look, it really doesn't look like there's temples lit up. Why would God even allow a mosque? A mosque is on the temple. What's taking place? Did Jesus fail when he came to earth? Remember what Jesus was supposed to do. He is supposed to bring the Shekinah glory. He's supposed to bring God to this earth, and a revelation of God was going to be given. And here's the temple where it was supposed to be, and did he do it? Did Christ fail? Christ did not fail. Christ did something different. Number three, instead of the Spirit of God dwelling in the temple, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, the church. When I was in Israel, I looked at the tomb where supposedly Jesus you know, was buried. They don't know exactly, but supposedly where Jesus was buried. And I would say that it's very fascinating to walk into the tomb and to, and to see a tomb and think, maybe Jesus was buried there. And one of the, or he, or not, one of the owners, he, he probably says this to everybody, but he says, you know the most miraculous thing about this tomb is that it's empty, <laughs> is that it's empty because the God is no longer in it. He is risen from the grave. He's risen from the tomb. You know what the most miraculous thing about the temple is that God's shikana glory does not reside there. Christ tried to, just decided to do something different. He says, I will not reside in one specific location on this earth that you need to fly over there and you need to visit to see the Chichona glory. What I will do is I will take my spirit and I will disperse it out amongst all people and I will live specifically in them. The whole New Testament just unfolds this concept that Christ does not live in a building. Christ lives in us. Second Corinthians thirteen. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives specifically in me. God lives in me. John sixteen seven. But I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking. It is good for you. it is it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. How could Jesus say that to his disciples and how would the disciples respond if Jesus says the words I'm God made into man but let me tell you some good news I'm leaving and it's going to be better that I leave than if I stay here. Why would he say that? Because the concept of God the shining glory God living in us was given to us. John 16:8 says this is when the Holy Spirit comes when he comes Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt concerning sin. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. And then we see in the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit show up in people, and when it shows up in people, what takes place? Revival happens. Acts 2-4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.4, the Spirit enabled them. Acts 8.29, the Spirit told Philip. Acts 11.12, the Spirit told me. Acts uh, 20.22, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Acts 4.31, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with complete boldness. You see what took place is when Jesus came, he says, I'm not residing in one spot Yes, you see the shikana glory, you see the power, you see the glory, you see the beauty, you see the majesty, but it's not going to reside in one spot. It's going to reside in you. What does that look like? What does it look like, Christ in us? There's many passages that talk about um, the fruit. What is fruit? The fruit is not my fruit. The fruit is called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. See what God's doing is he wanted to show himself his beauty, his glory, his justice, his majesty, his extreme power, and it is given in the temple. But that extreme power takes a whole new level of Christ living in us, and it takes the level of the Holy Spirit of what Jesus looks like. I have power to forgive. I have power to control. I have power to love I have power to give. Just to give you an example of what that looks like, I just want to tell you a little story that took place in Africa this last time I went. I talk about Pastor Ben Margai many times. He's just a guy that I've been working with for the last 12 years. And when I look at him, you will see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. You will see a passion. You will see an energy. You will see a happiness. You will see a joy and you would have no idea what that guy has gone through in his life. And I knew his story, and my daughters were in Africa, and I said, I want you to come and I want you to tell your testimony to my girls because I want my girls to hear your testimony. So he came and spent two hours with us just sharing his testimony. Just to go over some of his things that he talked about, he had eight mothers and 19 siblings. His dad was abusive and um, believed in polygamy and grabbed a hold of a lot of wives. And he lived in that house with the 19 siblings and the eight mothers. But one of the mothers that was claimed to be his mother was actually not even his mother. His biological mother ended up leaving her, her, his dad And he didn't even know that because one of the stepmoms stepped up and said, I am your mother, I am your biological mother. And he held on to that stepmom as the biological mother for many years. In fact, five years ago, it was just disclosed to him that she was not even his mother. And he met his mother the first time. Going through his life, child years were rough. But his junior high, high school years, and young adult years were even more rough. He lived in one of the most horrific wars that has ever taken place in regards to the brutality that happened at the Civil War in Sierra Leone. He talked about how he survived in the brush, how he starved, how he almost how he got scabies, uh, the times that uh, um, he almost died, and he confessed. One of the greatest prayers that I still say, God, please forgive me for praying, is I pray that the bullets hit somebody else because if they do, they won't hit me. He says I've never forgiven myself for saying a prayer like that. He also. Um, his sister was killed in the war and, and he knew the person that killed his sister and after the war took place, he went and he reconciled with this person that killed his sister and said, I just want you to know I forgive you. When he's sitting there telling the story, what do I see? I see Christ in him. He's saying it with peace. He's saying it with rest. He's seeing it with joy. He's saying, I have a God that is beyond my power and my control and as I'm listening to that testimony, it's like, God is definitely alive. He continued to talk a story. In fact, I walked with him during this story. But his wife was barren for eight years, could not have a baby. Now, in the United States, if somebody cannot have a baby, it's not as extreme as Africa. In Africa, if you cannot have a baby, then your wife is definitely cursed. And he said that his family members would bring women to his house and say, get rid of your wife because she is no good, cursed from an evil spirit, Take her instead. He said, I got three wives at my door that kept on walking and say, take her, take her, take her. And there was pressure putting me down in the process, putting them down in the process. He says, I will not take another wife. And if she remains barren the rest of her life, I will live it in the months of my entire family and amongst entire Sierra Leone. I don't care. My wife I will love like Christ loved the church. Praise God, three years ago, she got pregnant. Proved everyone wrong. And then she got pregnant again and now has two amazing children. But through that, it was definitely difficult. Ebola, one of the worst diseases taking place on the planet. Ben Margai suffered through it. Um, ben is a very political person. In fact, his, his grandfather was the president of Sierra Leone. And so when anything takes place in the country, he definitely responds to make something happen. And when Ebola took place, he responded in a sense that we've got to educate people um, any way, any degree we can. So he grabbed videos and he showed videos to make sure that people were not passing germs, that people were not touching bodies, and trying to give us information, give his country information on how to protect Ebola. And he was definitely on the phone with us in America consistently saying, what is going on? Explain the disease. Give us information. Give us help. And he went right to the streets in regards to taking care of Ebola. He said one story that he uh, completely broke down and cried on. He said he doesn't cry Africans they, they've gone through a lot, and they usually don't cry. But one story he just broke down and cried on. He said that uh, a mother and a father and a two-year-old daughter um, was in the same room that he was in, and they were concerned that they have Ebola, and even in the process of them being concerned they have Ebola, they died right there in that room. The mother and the father died specifically of Ebola. Two-year-old daughter was left. And you can't touch her, because if you touch her, what are you doing? You are spreading germs. And with passion, hurt, and pain in his heart, he explained that two-year-old girl did not die of Ebola. That two-year-old girl died of neglect, because nobody could touch her. He explained that he got malaria twice in the process of Ebola. Now, during Ebola, what happens is that all hospitals are shut down, If you have a fever, you are taken to a compound where everybody has Ebola because you specifically probably have Ebola if you have a fever. And if you don't have Ebola and you go into that compound, you will get Ebola and you will die. Sure enough, he went through malaria, high fevers in his house thinking, do I have Ebola? Told me one time that his fever was so high and he was shaking and he was thinking, I'm going to die. in the the saddest part about this is my family is here. They've touched me. They've been with me. They might die too. He was suffering through that. But Again, I would just like to say something about Ben if you ever looked at him. There is a joy. There's a strength. There's a peace. There's a love. There's a forgiveness. There is an endurance. There is a passion that is so inside of him you would have no idea that that guy had a history. I asked him, I said, when do you find Christ and get excited about who Christ is and what Christ does. And he said something that shocked me that I wanted to respond to. He said, my Christian life started growing when Jefferson Baptist Church showed up in Sierra Leone and started working with me. And I wanted to defend Jefferson. Well, no, 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 no. Jefferson Baptist is we're a wonderful church. Everything's wonderful, but we didn't start that passion, that fire, that the thing that you have going on. And he says, no. You did. But I corrected myself, thinking, we are a church with the temple of God living in us, Christ in us, and he saw that. He didn't see us. He saw our service, our sacrifice, our commitment, our money that was given, the things that were in our heart. It came out, and he saw specifically who Christ was through us. And then I sat there, my daughter sat there, and we listened to his testimony, And we sat there, and we saw Christ in him. You see how the church works? Is it Christ? God wants to make a revelation to the world. And the revelation to the world is not specifically us. The revelation to the world is Christ in us. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, everything that Jesus carried, he says, I will not let that dwell in a temple. I want to dwell in the hearts of every human. Yes, in the Old Testament you see power, glory, strength, fire. But in Christ you see power, power to forgive, power to destroy sin, power to get rid of pride, power to lay down our lives. You also see glory in Christ, glory in his humility, glory in his love, glory in his commitment. Strength, you see strength in his service, sacrifice, fire, fire in his excitement, fire in his joy, fire in his happiness, fire in Christ's energy. Do you see how Christ has changed the whole world? He took God's Shekinah glory from the temple and says, I am not going to let it rest there anymore. I am God made into man, and God in his beauty and his character will now live in my people. Number four, Moses longed for the day when the Spirit dwelt in all people. Remember who Moses was. Moses saw the power, glory, strength, fire of God on Mount Sinai, and he saw the power, glory, strength, and fire in the tabernacle. He says something in Numbers that is really interesting. Numbers 11, 17. This is a description. I will take of the Spirit, this is what God talked to Moses, that is on you, and I'll put the Spirit on them. Moses was filled with the Holy Spirit, but he was going to take the spirit that was on Moses and put the spirit on them. Who's them? Numbers 11.25 tells us. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took the spirit that was on him, Moses, and put the spirit on the 70 elders. The spirit that was on Moses then left and, not left, but was taken and then given to 70 specific elders, and we know that it was not beyond the 70 Because it explains the 70. But then Numbers 11, here's Moses' response. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon everyone, upon them all. Acts 2.17, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Do you know that Moses' dream about the era and the age and the day that we live? Moses, who saw the Shekinah glory of God and saw the majesty of God and talked to God face-to-face, looked forward and longed for the day when God's Spirit was not only in 70 people, was not only in him, but God's Spirit resided in everybody called his church. Moses longed for that day. Number five, we are the temple of God so that our communities, families, friends, and co-workers would see God. You do not need to go to Israel to see the Shekinah glory of God. The glory of God resides in all people. Let's look at the same verses that we looked at at the beginning. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? That is a specific temple that he is talking about, that he resides in. But then after he says temple, what does he say? And that God's spirit lives in you temple, right after the words, God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you specifically are that temple. You see the temple, and then right after you see God's Spirit lives in you. It's a consistency It takes place in every verse, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we are the temple of the living God. After you talk about the temple, he's going to explain what the temple says. And as God said, I will live in them. I will walk with them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. In 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And then you got to make the statement after he explains temple, he's got to make a statement what it means. He says, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought with the price. So the challenge, the question would be this morning is, does your family see God live in you? Does your coworkers see Christ living in you? Does the church or community see Christ living in the church? Do they see Jefferson Baptist wanting to display Christ to our entire community as God has given us this geographical area? Do you see when God calls us the temple, He's explaining, this is my message to everybody is around you. And my message is that I am alive. And I've lit the temple on fire. And the temple is you. Therefore, do you take part of the salvation of Jesus Christ? And do you think and meditate and get excited about the fact that God lives in you for the purpose to change the world around you? For the purpose to see, for them to see Christ that is in you. Let's pray, Father. We just thank you, God, for this gift. God, the gift of salvation comes with so much, and the, the one item that it comes with, God, is is that it comes with you. And uh, God, I just pray, God, that uh, the world around us, God, sees you specifically, sees your character, sees your love, sees your forgiveness, sees your strength, beauty, majesty, and glory, God, through our lives. God, we do not want to take you for granted whatsoever, but we want the world, God, to see you in us. Empower us, God, to do so. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.